Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's bring in Russ Kostrick now, BlackRock Global Allocation Fund Portfolio Manager. Russ, let's ask that question that's being asked in the FT here at Bloomberg and elsewhere as well. Do you think the events of the last week could lead to broader deleveraging in the hedge fund community? I think you, you are going to see some people rethink their positioning. But look, I think there are a couple things going on here apart from the question of leverage and derivatives. The first is look, we've known for many years that liquidity can be a challenge. Uh, a lot of that discussion was focused on the credit markets and obviously it extends to equity markets as well. But the second part of this is really, you know, you alluded to the calm on the surface, and I think that's true. What hasn't been remarked about as much is how much positions below the surface are being whipsawed. These daily rotations where you see sectors and styles moving two, three standard deviations in a day because investors flip back and forth between reopening trades. Uh, in stay-at-home trades, that is also causing a lot of pain if you're on the wrong side of those moves. Russ, how do you synthesize a boom economy into global allocation, and for that matter, just trying to get to next Monday? How do you synthesize <laughs> it? And I'm going to take Hotsius over at Goldman Sachs, going out to a stunning 10% plus statistic for Q2 growth. You and I have never seen this. Um, uh, Rosenberg exactly. out of Carnegie Mellon, all the years he studied at Tupper, guess what? He's never seen this. How do you frame your work in a boom milieu? Look, I think this is exactly the right question, probably the most important, because as you've said, very few living investors have ever seen this. Uh, to me, it means a couple of things. One you were alluding to before the break, which is that rates are going to continue to normalize. It doesn't mean that they melt up forever, but it is very hard. And I think, Tom, you nailed this before, to reconcile negative 60 BIP real 10-year yield and an economy that may grow 7, 8, 9, 10% uh, in the back half of the year. One of those two things is wrong. We think rates continue to normalize. The other is a lot of investors were used to thinking only in terms of beta. What's your market exposure? I think if you're going to have an economy that's growing that fast, you also have to think in terms of your cyclical exposure. There are going to be parts of this economy, companies that they're going to see demand they've not seen in decades. Can you lever those themes? Uh, can you take advantage of that very fundamental change in your portfolio? Those are two of the things we're focusing on. Our duration is the lowest it's been in years. And we're looking for ways to add cyclical exposure uh, back into the portfolio. I know you're speaking metaphorically, Russ, but you said, how can we lever those cyclical themes in order <laughs> to add uh, exposure in your portfolio? There are people, however, who are taking this quite literally, as we have learned, and they are leveraging up some of their positions. Yes, rates are normalizing, but there is a belief, and the Fed is adding to this, that they are sitting on the front end. As we do see some push toward normalization, are there more accidents waiting to happen? Like what we just saw? I think whenever you see an abrupt move, there are always going to be blow ups. There are going to be people that are overextended. You know, you've had a very strong bull market. There's going to be concentration. The thing that I would watch is actually the rapidity of the move. You know, we, we know this. We've seen that stocks and rates can move up together. Matter of fact, 
if you look at equities, equity multiples and real rates, they tend to move up together for, for the obvious reason that as the economy gets better and companies gain operating leverage, earnings go up. What can trip up the market is the rapidity and more specifically the spike in bond market volatility. If you look at what's been happening the last three or four months, bond volatility has been increasingly moving with stock volatility. That's where I think the danger is. If we get these days, these weeks, where yields back up this quickly, that unnerves investors, and that's when you tend to see some of these blow-ups. Russ, before we let you run, I caught up with Rick Reader yesterday, just briefly, and he did not sound as bullish as he has done over the last several months. He was talking about a big cash allocation, waiting for some volatility through the summer. Yep. You were all on the same page over at BlackRock with that view. Well, I hope so. Rick and I work together. We co-manage the fund. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> We, you know, so John we, we had been bringing our the lead, Russ. You buried the lead for the last five minutes. That's <laughs> why I brought it up John. delicately. You sounded like a no, different no, man absolutely. to Rick. Walk me through it, Russ. We, we've been doing exactly what, what's been described, which is, look, the, the fundamentals are, are strong with the cyclical recovery. Stocks are likely to end the year higher, but we are looking at a choppier market. So what have we done? We've done a couple of things. We have trimmed our equity exposure, and we have brought the duration way, way down, as I spoke about a moment ago. Instead, rather than looking at bonds for that hedge in your portfolio, as Rick described, we've been building up cash, having that dry powder. There will be opportunities to reinvest. Not trying to cause trouble, Russ. You know that. <laughs> Not just trying to tease <laughs> no, out what's actually that. going on. Russ Postrick there, BlackRock Global Allocation yeah, right. Fund Portfolio Manager. Okay, here's what we're going to do, folks, and this is important for Global Wall Street and everybody else on radio and TV. Why don't we find someone out there totally removed from the madness of margin calls and excess leverage? James Bevan would be a candidate with CCLA, Chief Investment Officer. He has been running sober money for decades, and he joins us today. James, I'm not going to waste your time with the margin call discussion in that. What I am going to say to you is, how do you operate in this milieu? What do you actually do when you've got big banks bouncing off of big losses? What I observe, Tom, is that we are indeed going to get excellent economic growth figures for April and May, uh, significantly on the back of the actions of the Biden administration and not least the $1,400 posted out to the eligible persons. And I think that therefore we will see something in the order of $180 of earnings to the S&P 500 in the current calendar year, rising to $200 next year. Now, of course, baked into the cake of those numbers is a premise that companies are going to invest in capital that improves productivity and allows margins to stay elevated. And given the environment that one might observe for inflation and money rates, I think that justifies the year-end target for the S&P 500 this year of 4,300 points, rising to 4,800 points next year. And if there is a real risk, I think it is twofold. One, that the Federal Reserve continues to argue that it doesn't need to change rates, that the bond market therefore does the work for uh, quelling inflation, and that leads to a dislocation between bond yields and equity prices, uh, and inevitably leads to a correction. The other risk, which I think is just as real, is that uh, a large chunk of the $1,400 that has been posted out is applied to the equity markets. We get a melt up during May and early June. And uh, that's the point where we should take money off the table. James, optimal reopening play then. What is it? 
Uh, for me, it's the world-class banks that operate in the United States. So JP Morgan and Bank of America seems to me that they have ample opportunity uh, to lend sensibly into an accelerating market. They have uh, excellent loan criteria. I don't think they're going to trip up, but they will be significant participants in economic recovery. The other big trade, I think, is shifting from consumer staples to consumer discretionary, which is a very obvious trade. But I'm surprised when I look at the portfolios of fund managers in the marketplace, how few have yet to really make that switch. I got to say, it does sound like there's some subtext there when you say you're favoring banks that lend sensibly. And then you talk about J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, two of the banks that were somewhat immune from the recent blow up of Archegos. Are you staying away from other banks, from perhaps European banks or Japanese banks that got embroiled in this issue? Or uh, do you see them also as potentially holding value as the yield curve steepens? No, I am absolutely staying out of, of those areas. I worry that the European banks face a perfect storm of continuing negative rates. And after all, when one thinks about how the European Central Bank's target two system operates, unlike the Federal Reserve arrangements in the States where the regional central banks to zero their interbank balances, there are huge imbalances within the euro system. Germany has to lend huge sums into the target two system. Bundesbank then calls the commercial banks to provide capital and having asked for the capital then sends them a bill because of negative interest rates. No surprise, the European banks are in real trouble. And I would observe that the French banks have been pulling back in lending into Asia. That strikes me as a real sign that French banks are going to be in relative trouble. If you wanted to look outside the States, I think the most interesting area is India, where I see an accelerating economy. I see a reasonably well-run banking system. Names like HDFC, I think, absolutely stand out for consideration. James, I've got to jump in just to bring some breaking news just quickly. Germany to reassess the AstraZeneca vaccine after more thrombosis cases. Tom, this just <coughs> speaks to the divide between the United States and Europe right now. Just the compare and contrast of the last 24 hours. President Biden talking about making the vaccine eligible no. for all adults in America, 90% of adults by the middle of next month. And here's Europe grappling still with the AstraZeneca vaccine to reassess the AstraZeneca vaccine in Germany after more thrombosis cases. That headline just crossed into Bloomberg. Uh, Canada yesterday with much the same treatment. I'm not saying equivalent treatment, but certainly, John, it's a trend. James, how on earth do you stay long Europe in any way, shape or form with this going on in the background? I think it's extremely difficult to be positive about the outlook for the European economy. Uh, fiscal policy is a mess. I think that there are real tensions uh, within the euro system. If you ask me to talk about a country that is worth considering, it would be Italy. But I do observe that there are political shifts in Italy which will be positive for the long term. Equally, when I think about the sort of European companies that I would favour, it is the giants that are capable of making money like LVMH, which I think remain extremely well run. Uh, and clearly should be, from my perspective, long-term poor holdings of a growth-focused portfolio. James, thank you, as always. Let's get back to that news. James Bevan there of CCLA Chief Investment Officer. Right now, Gregory Meeks joins us. He is a Democrat. 
He is from New York. This could be a two-hour conversation because of his perspective on foreign affairs and his perspective as a congressman from John Fitzgerald Kennedy Airport in New York, the 5th District in New York, and we welcome the congressman uh, back again. Congressman Meeks, on infrastructure, I got good news. New Jersey's worse than New York. That's all we need to know. (laughs) New York is doing fine right now by any civil engineering study. But you know, when you get off the plane in New York at LaGuardia, at JFK, anywhere else, there's a lot of roads that are troubled, a lot of bridges troubled. Some 400 bridges in New York State are 100 years old or more. How do we fix this with this new infrastructure bill? What's different this time right now? I think that this time we're going to get something done. Um, uh, I think that you know, if you talk to uh, Democrats and, and Republicans, I believe, They understand that if you look at our crumbling infrastructure, like you said, not only in the city of New York, but across this nation, that we've got to invest in it. It's just the same as, you know, those of us who, you know, want enough to own homes. You've got to invest in your home to keep it up. Otherwise, it will crumble down no matter how well it was built. Uh, But if it was built 50, 60 years ago, like our infrastructure, uh, it deteriorates. And uh, therefore, you got to invest in it. And if you invest in it, uh, then that makes it... uh, profitable for everybody that will utilize it because everyone will utilize that infrastructure. Can we do this with bond financing of the maturity and length of our new bridges, our new roads, and indeed a new terminal at JFK? Why can't we just finance this out 30, 40, 50, even dare I say 70 years? Well, I think that what we need to do it is a combination of all. It's going to take a little bit of everything from everybody. That's why I'm a firm believer in these uh, a number of uh, public-private partnerships. So as I look at, for example, uh, what we're doing at JFK Airport, uh, there needs to be there's some government investment in it, uh, and we're fighting to get that. I tried to get some of it in uh, because as a result of the pandemic, uh, of course, you look at the revenue that was at the Kennedy Airport, it went down tremendously. So government should help in it, but also we've had private industry that's investing in it. So we need sac- some sacrifice from them, and that's why we extended the lease on the airport so that there's a longer term for them to get a return on their investment for the money that they will be putting into it also. So you're getting money from both sides in that regards, which is fair to the taxpayers and it's fair to the private investors also. Congressman, you wear many hats and I want to turn to a delicate question about foreign policy, if I may. Companies are getting very much entangled with what is happening in China very much around the Collins situation in Xinjiang. And I wonder from your perspective whether you think that US-based companies should face a ban of using cotton out of Xinjiang. Well, here's what I think, you know, and I don't think, I think that what we should do, uh, and, and this, I believe this on foreign affairs is work in multilateral ways. So I was a strong, a strong supporter, for example, and here's where I think that we made a mistake. Uh, I was a strong supporter in TPP, uh, working with other countries to make sure that the rules were level and to, instead of isolating ourselves, uh, make sure that we all are playing by, if China doesn't play by those same rules, then China would be isolated. And so when they are playing with certain products, uh, particularly when you talk about the, uh, uh, the type of product that you just mentioned uh, and chips, et cetera, that um, um, it is us who believe in you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the WTO and others, and we need to enforce those laws and rules. And, uh, and it's China who's violating them. Uh, and so as opposed to the, just, just the United States by ourselves, yep. 
we're not as effective. But if it's the United States and our friends in the EU and our other doing it collectively, now you are having something that is really going to have effect on China. But Congressman, right now already, and forgive me for jumping in, if I may, U.S.-based companies are already facing potentially a boycott in the mainland right now. That will hurt their revenues, their profits. And to get in line with the policy of the United States, you need to get these multinationals on board. And we've seen that repeatedly not work out. We saw it with the Walt Disney Company last year in the production of Mulan. And we're seeing it with Nike right now, who are trying to avoid using cotton from Xinjiang, along with other multinationals too. And they face a boycott on the mainland. How do you offer them cover to make the decision that would be in line with your administration? Well, the way that you offer them cover is that if they work collectively together, we can reverse it. And we can reverse, I know that they, you know China is doing what it's doing because they think that they would put pressure on us uh, in that regards and isolate us. Uh, so the way that you change that is working with the multinationals collectively, putting them all together, figuring out how we can work together so that their issues and their, and their concerns are resolved, and then putting that proposition uh, versus China. But they want to be there, sir. That's ultimately the problem. They want to be there. They want to straddle that fine line between pleasing you and a progressive consumer base in the United States, and they want a presence in China at the same time. So I have to go back to the previous question. Is it something you would consider banning these companies and making the decision for them, banning them from using cotton from that region? See, I don't like to use the word banning. I like to use the word working collectively together. And, and that means that you can come to a resolution collectively, you know, understanding they all have the same business interests. I don't want them to, 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 to damage uh, their business interests that they have uh, in China. I want China to be able to, you know, one of the things is to open up their markets uh, in regards to our company so that we can compete globally, just as China competes and we have an open economy here in the United States. And that's equitable. And that's what trading is all about. That's what that's how you work with both national, uh, multinational corporations. So, in my estimation, what we want to do is um, is uh, talk to our multinationals uh, and let them know that it is important for them to work collectively together in the long haul. Yeah. benefit all of us in the long run if we work in that in, in, in that spirit in that cooperation. Congressman, it's a really delicate issue right now, and I appreciate your input on the subject. I'd love to catch up with you again soon on it, too. Congressman, thank you. Congressman Gregory Meeks there, the Democrat from New York. It is the micro data that leads to the macro call, and Ethan Harris joins us right now, expert at the macro call, but using the resources of his Bank of America, where he's head of global economics. Ethan, what I do is I look at the parlor game of one-year guess or two-year guess, and I take a considered Ethan Harris average, that's what Michelle Meyer does, and I come out with a Chinese economy. You guys have six and a quarter percent economic growth spread out over 24 months. That is a Chinese equivalent economy. How will America and adapt and adjust to this if we have an economy that's not structured like China? Well, we can't grow at that pace indefinitely. I mean, this is just a, a huge a fiscally fueled recovery, uh, fastest recovery in history for the U.S. economy in the next two years. Um, and eventually we have to slow down. And so, uh, you know, by the time we get to 2023, 
there's going to have to be some changes here. The Fed's going to have to pull back a bit. Uh, we can't really afford to continue to do trillion-dollar fiscal packages every year. Um, we can't grow at Chinese rates. We don't have the, the population. We don't have the catching up to do on new te technology that China has. Uh, but we can get two really robust years in a row. Ethan, I've been looking at the card spending data that you produce in your reports, and I just wonder for you, one, what are you seeing right now? And two, how useful has that been just to have every twist and turn spelled out for you guys just ahead of time? Yeah, I mean, we aggregate the data, so obviously we don't know anything about the individuals involved in, in this data. Um, and we, we, it's turned out to correlate quite well with turns in spending. And it's particularly interesting to look at the spending behavior when you can match it up to policy changes like the rollout of stimulus checks and how that impacted households who got those checks. Um, and what you found was that the stimulus checks really boosted spending a lot. And uh, it's one of the factors that convinced us to get even higher above consensus on growth with consumer spending, we think, in the, uh, the, the start of the year at um, almost 12% annualized rate. So uh, the stimulus check really have put a lot of caffeine into the economy. Unreal numbers. Ethan, just forgive me, just give me a couple of minutes and I'll go through some of your research for our audience. Lisa, look at this. Seven days ending March 20th. Now, you can do the year over year and you can look at the base effects and we're up 45%. But just look at 2019, the last two years, 2019 or rather 2020, 2019 into 20 versus 21 right now. We're up 23% on a two-year basis for retail sales. Looking at the credit card spending that we got out of Bank of America, these numbers are huge. But when do we move from recovery and just making up the lost ground into something more sustainable and that's something that has perhaps longer legs, uh, adding to employment, adding to inflation over the longer term? And Ethan, it seems like the consensus is this is a momentary blip. Morgan Stanley saying it'll burn hot and it'll burn short. Do you agree or are there longer lasting legs from all of this spending that could bleed into a faster economy for an even longer period of time? Well, I mean, it, it is true that, that, that we're not going to grow at 12% every quarter going forward, uh, but the, the, the fade in growth is not going to be that dramatic. We're, we think by the end of next year, we'll be growing 4% instead of 12%. That's still a great number by historic standards. That's double the normal growth rate of the U.S. And the reason we think there's legs in this is because the, they're going to continue to roll out fiscal stimulus. We're going to get another two or three trillion uh, uh, spread over the next four or five years. Uh, and the Fed is put got both feet planted in the accelerator, keeping interest rates at zero in the face of a strong recovery and rising inflation is very stimulative. It's unprecedented. So I don't agree with this idea of a short run kind of caffeine high that then goes away. I do think we slow down, but we slow down to still strong rates. This is a really important point, and you raised an issue of ongoing fiscal stimulus. How much are you thinking about these checks, not maybe 1,400, but still checks being sent to Americans as being the precursor to some sort of universal basic income, some sort of ongoing payments, and that the evidence of the spending that John was just talking about being used to justify that kind of plan? Well, you've got you've got elements of this already in the the various uh, plans from out of the administration. So we've already seen an increase in the childcare credit uh, just for the the uh, next year. But but it's very likely that that's going to be extended. So there are going to be elements of trying to support 
uh, moderate income families that are uh, developed on a sustained basis. I don't think we go to you know, some of the more uh, aggressive, broader proposals around kind of guaranteeing incomes at certain levels. I don't think we get to that, but there's a lot of progressive elements to this, this stimulus. And Tom, here is the conundrum, in my opinion, when it comes to inflation, which is such a key issue uh, for markets. The idea here that if we start getting payments directly into the economy on an ongoing basis, could that fuel an inflationary push that perhaps people are not factoring in? And how much does this finally lead to wage inflation that we have not yet seen. Well, that, the, the wage inflation question's there, and we'll get that evidence on Friday. Dr. Harris, I want to go back to Columbia University and particularly to the engineering work at Clark University that was hit over your head at a young, young age. And it goes back to systems analysis and the idea of many people that there has to be a cost, there has to be a price to any zero-sum system. How do you have a boom with all the benefits of a boom that we're all hoping for and have that emotion of there's got to be a price to this down the road. What's the Ethan Harris price that we will pay? Right. Uh, you just gave my whole resume away there. Thank you for that. Um, on the uh, So in the short run, um, we can afford to have big budget deficits. We, uh, we need to get the economy out of this hole. Uh, unemployment rate still over 6%. Um, but the problem is that while you can kind of have, you know, your cake and eat it too during a recession and do this <clears throat> right. stimulus, once you get into a full recovery, now you're competing for resources between the private sector and the public sector. And if you keep on rolling out big stimulus money and financing it through the bond market, you're going to starve the private sector of capital. And that's where the danger comes. It's not um, right now. My concern is, you know, we get into a fully employed economy late next year and uh, the nobody kind of uh, hits the stops, sees the stop sign there. We don't slow down at all. And then we get competing resources. We get some inflation. Uh, we get some crowding out of private investment. Those are the costs. You know, what's fascinating, Ethan, about this and brilliant analysis is that versus a closed economy versus open economy. If we get to a capital allocation moment, 2023, 2024, we do that in a global economy. Does that leak out into the global system? Yeah, I mean, we're going to be we are drive, going to be driving the global economy in the next couple of years uh, to a lesser degree. China as well. Um, we're going to be buying a tremendous amount of imports, so we're going to be exporting a big chunk of our uh, fiscal stimulus, um, and we're going to be relying on foreign capital to help fund our economy. And so, you know, that's not free money. That's money that you you know you owe to the rest of the world, um, and so there's a growing indebtedness. <clears throat> U.S. to the rest of the world yeah. as we continue to borrow like crazy. So we're going to have bigger trade deficits, sustained high budget deficits. Right. Um, this isn't a free lunch here. Yeah, John, this is so, so important. It goes back to Bill Gross years ago talking about the locomotive of the system. And as Dr. Harris says, there's no question the U.S. is a locomotive front and center. Oh, very much. You can see that in the data at the moment. The recovery in China has already matured. You see it in the credit impulse data as well, Tom. Ethan, we've got to leave it there. Ethan Harris, Bank of America Securities Head of Global Economics. Sir, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight 
from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.